Chapter Four of Miss Frances Baird, Detective. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Exit the Jewels. As I have said, Kemp's room and mine opened each on the second floor hall and into the room which had been set aside for the display of the wedding gifts that, more commonly, one expects to be held, if at all, at the home of the bride. This room was directly at the head of the first flight of stairs, but the gifts in it were so arranged on several tables as to be in plain view from the centre of either of our apartments, of which, of course, the doors were always to be left open. The scheme of surveillance was so arranged that either Kemp or I was always to be in one of these rooms, and my fellow detective was later on to slip into the jewel room and camp out there for the night. After Mr. Deneen had taken the diamonds to the place which he had devised for them, I assumed the duties of first watch, and while the guests for the dance were arriving, went into my own room to primp a bit for my subsequent appearance downstairs, where the orchestra was already tuning up in the rapidly converted dining-room. I stood before the mirror and admitted that, after all, there was not likely to be any woman, even in that company, who would altogether outshine me. The looking-glass showed me a girl, not yet twenty-five, whose lithe but excellently drawn figure was in good proportion. Her head was well-shaped, her hair plentiful, fine and black, with a tinge of auburn in certain lights, her features delicate and regular, her dark eyes large and bright and tender, and her lips full and red. Moreover, she was dressed in an unexceptionable evening gown of the pale yellow that best became her, and wore in her corsage the great bunch of yellow roses with which, from his own garden, old Mr. Deneen had just gallantly presented her. "'It is a pity,' I said. "'A pity. Here you are, Francis Baird, with good looks and wit and finishing school behind you, not to mention a year or two abroad, and, just because you were once a little fool, nothing ahead but detective work. Well, all that hardly belongs to this story, and I don't know why I tell it now, I'm sure. Certainly it didn't dwell very long with me at that time, because it wasn't pleasant, and I had my paid duty to perform. I got out my little revolver, slipped it back of the Deneen roses, and made a more careful investigation of the rooms. They were all three at the front of the house, and opened on a long, wide, dark hallway, the staircase, which came just to the main doorway of the gift-room, breaking there and turning away to the third floor. Looking out of one of the windows of my own room, I saw that the others of the trio were provided with similar casements, and that beneath them all was that flat roof of the big piazza below, beyond which rose the trees of the driveway, now agleam with lights." but with the two rooms next on the other side of mine the case was different. These were directly at the centre of the house front, and over the piazza at this point a little balcony had been built, covered with vines, and somehow forgotten by the lanterns which made bright the big porch below. These two rooms, I soon learned, were for the wraps of the guests, the first for the men, and the more distant for the women, and as I looked out of my window and listened to the carriages driving up below me, there came quite clearly to my ears— the voices of a couple of men talking just behind those vines. "'I hear,' said one, "'that Larry Fredericks has only just arrived.' "'Yes,' said the other. "'I came up the stairs with him. He's to stop here, of course, till Tuesday, and has a room somewhere round the corner from this one, I believe. Rather a late hour for the best man at a wedding fete. Not so late as Larry would like to make it, I guess. For my part, I can't see why he hadn't the nerve to marry the girl himself, since he's so sweet on her, or why, having given her up, he ever agreed to play second fiddle at the church. Oh, well, that's his own business, I suppose. Ready? And in a few minutes the conversation was at an end. 
It left me a little curious in regard to Lawrence Fredericks, who had appeared in a rather shabby light, but, though I went downstairs as soon as Kemp relieved me, and met several people in the great crowd, and danced with many, I did not chance to see this man at all. However, at last I heard him, a good deal after midnight, in fact, as most of the guests were departing, I suddenly recollected that I had overstayed my time, and that Kemp was probably writhing in his room, awaiting my return in order that he might himself enjoy the fag-end of the festivities downstairs. Little as I liked the fellow, I was somewhat conscience-stricken at this, for I never cared to see pleasure winning my inclinations from business when there was work to be done, and so I now hurried up to the second floor, and finding him pacing the gift-room, made the best sort of an apology possible. I am bound to say that he was rather decent about it. "'Don't bother, Miss Baird,' he said. "'It's been not unpleasant staying about here, really, and hearing how all these people took the sight of these fine things. But I'm afraid your watch will be dull, for they've certainly all been up and gone down by this time. I'm sorry I can't have the pleasure of asking you for a dance.' I bowed, and he went away, twirling his little black moustache, and leaving me standing before the heap of jewels, which had naturally been given the place of honour among the wedding gifts. I know something about diamonds. It is part of my profession which I have cultivated, even if Mr. Kemp has not, and I have seen a lot of them. But as I have said, I had never before that night seen any quite so fine in anything like so great a profusion. I took them up one by one, the various pieces. I might well have been an hour or more about it. I was so fascinated, remarking carefully the excellent points and the thousand beauties of each and every separate stone. For all his strange care, Mr. Deneen had not overrated them. They were well worth watching. To repeat, I don't know how long I was about it. I stood there, anyhow, fingering them for a great while, as one by one the remaining guests passed by the hall door, got their wraps, descended, and departed. Downstairs, I reflected, the wedding party only must be left of all this rural early-hour assemblage, and they, too, would soon be turning in or away. Yet I couldn't get my gaze off those fairy-like diamonds." Coming after a long silence, a step in the hall behind me finally brought me to myself. It passed the open door as if I had been unnoticed. I was, at that time, I remember, standing somewhat to one side and in the shadow, and went into the men's room, while I, oddly startled, retreated at last to my own, now darkened apartment, and drawing a comfortable rocking-chair into a corner, whence I could watch the diamonds, through the open doorway, prepared to round out my guard until Kemp should come up my eyes fixed on those gleaming gems under a piano lamp not thirty feet away from me, and a clock somewhere in the house striking, as I found by referring hastily to my watch, the half-hour after two. My eyes, I repeat, were fixed, but not my ears, for in a brief instant I detected the sound of low voices somewhere close by, a man's voice that was strange to me, but deep and pleasant, and a woman's, clearly that of Evelyn Bladesdell, from the same little balcony where I had, earlier in the evening, heard the talk about her and Mr. Fredericks. Well, I listened. Was I not employed to watch the Deneen jewels? And was the honour of young Deneen's fiancée no jewel in his father's sight? And I heard the man plainly now, speaking passionately, vehemently, though in accents carefully guarded. But I tell you, he was saying, that it is not too late. If you have the courage of your convictions, you can run away with me now, to-morrow, if you care two straws about me. "'Oh, Larry, you know that I love you,' she interrupted. "'Then,' he concluded, "'you have only to prove it in the one way open. "'But, Larry, why won't you understand? "'We are poor, you and I, "'and you yourself have said "'that you can't even keep yourself as you ought to do. 
We can't live on nothing. You know that. Oh, money, money, money. Yes, that's it, the curse of the whole thing. In plain words, you'd marry me even the last moment, if I only had the money. Isn't that it? Dear, that is true, but not in the hard way you put it. Never mind how I put it. It is true, and that's the point. Yet here I must say good-bye to you, forever, when I know that if I could only lay my hands on ten thousand dollars to-night, I'd be a millionaire inside of a week. Why, it's damnable. That's what it is. And all for a bit of money that doesn't come to one-tenth the value of those diamonds just down the hall. The words were the audible framing of exactly the thought that had flashed through my own head when the man began to speak. Here, I had said to myself, was a rash young fellow, in desperate need of a few thousand dollars, and lying apparently unguarded and almost within reach, was a big double handful of stones which he had only to pocket to gain his heart's desire. To hear my very thought expressed by the invisible speaker made me start forward in my rocking-chair. The weight of the rocker fell upon a loose board in the flooring, and there was a faint squeak, which in the momentary stillness sounded unconscionably loud in my affrighted ears as I rose involuntarily to my feet. On the balcony I heard a stifled cry. "'What was that?' asked the man's voice. "'Oh, I guess I was only foolishly frightened.' I heard the girl try to reassure him. "'It was nothing.' "'But, Evelyn, it seemed to come from over that way. Why?' There was a strange ring in the hushed voice. "'Why, it might be somebody after the jewels. I'm going to see.' "'Oh, no, it was nothing. We must hurry. We must get downstairs. Or at any rate I must, if you are going back to your room. They'll be missing me if I don't. Besides, Mr. Stenger and Mr. Remington will be waiting. They are to go over with the Walsh girls and me, you know. So soon?' "'I must.' "'Never mind, Larry. It breaks my heart, but—but—well, be here at the same time to-morrow night, then.' I heard her brush by the door and down the stairs. I heard the man's tread pass along the hall in the opposite direction, hesitating, and then, when that sound had died away—quite died away, in fact—suddenly, quietly, but not stealthily, it seemed, it came again, the masculine footfall down the corridor, and—yes, into the gift-room.' the man, of course, returning to investigate that clumsiness of mine. My mission being a secret one, it would not do to have him see me in my present attitude of guard, and yet, as I turned about, I realized that, in springing involuntarily from my chair, I had made several paces into the square of light cast from the gift-room into my own quarters. It was then several steps back into the shadow. It was but one behind the door. I chose the door. But I was not there long. The steps merely walked into the gift-room and out of it again, without appreciable pause. Then, suddenly, realizing that, for one instant I had lost sight of the jewels, I scurried noiselessly to the table on which they lay. A glance there, and another of the now empty and ever dark corridor, and then, I could not have told why, a third back at those jewels. Something about them had changed. Something, but just what I was unable immediately to say. Hurriedly, Tremblingly, I snatched up the necklace, the sunburst, the earrings, the bracelets, one by one, and then I knew. A glance sufficed for me. In the mere two seconds in which they had been hidden from my sight, the real diamonds had been stolen and replaced by a close and clever imitation in paste. End of chapter 4